Welcome to episode 53, Repairing Broken Bonds, Working with Couples After Infidelity, by Dr. Nancy Gardner, Licensed Clinical Psychologist, from Clearly Clinical, Learn, Grow, Shine. Hello, welcome to my podcast. My podcast is entitled Repairing Broken Bonds, Working with Couples After Infidelity. And my name is Nancy Gardner. I am a clinical psychologist. I work in Westlake Village in California with individuals and couples. I'm also a certified trainer and supervisor in emotionally focused therapy or EFT, which is an empirically validated method of couple therapy. I co-founded the Los Angeles Center for EFT in Los Angeles. I want to talk to you today about working with couples after there's been an infidelity. I will talk to you using a case example, and I will present the case as if it's one story, but in order to protect my client's confidentiality, I will tell you a story that changes details and combines a few stories of couples I have worked with. All the statements I will use the most, are some of the most poignant statements that clients I have worked with around affairs have uttered in my office. My intent is to help you feel the emotional impact of this work for you and for your couples. And my intent for the full presentation is to help you keep your balance and to give you an empirically validated roadmap when you work with couples who come to you when they are in this painful place. So I'm going to start with uh, a phone call that I received a few years ago now from a woman who said to me, I've been married for about 25 years and uh, my marriage has been pretty good, um, even a little bit better lately. But a few days ago, I was home And the UPS man came to the door with a package for me from someone my husband knew from work, a woman I knew, a woman who had been in our home several times for social occasions. I was alone when I opened the package. The children were in the other room. And the package had items that the woman was returning to my husband and a pile of love letters that he had written to her over the past two years. I went off by myself. I did my best to not involve our children, but I could hardly hold myself together. I'm so angry. I'm so hurt. I'm shaking. I'm not even sure I want to stay with him, but I appreciate that he's willing to come to therapy with me. Can you help us? So I want you to reflect for just a moment on getting this phone call, what that might be like for you. And I'll tell you what it was like for me. Um, I, of course, felt strong, strong empathy for this woman. I had, um, immediately I could put myself in her place, thinking about what it might be like for me to get letters that my husband, love letters that my husband had written to someone else. And of course, feelings about him and why would he do something like this also came up. So I want you to just reflect on that. And I bring this up because I think, uh, as in many of our cases, we end up with strong empathy on one side or the other. And in this case, in the case of someone who has been cheated on and betrayed, the first empathy is with the person who's been hurt. Then we have to do some work to try to understand what's happened and what working with the couple might be like. So before we get back to Lisa, and I'll call this woman Lisa, not her name. I want to give you a very short description 
of emotionally focused therapy to ground you as we start to work with this painful situation that Lisa has described for you. As I said, we need to start to get our own bearings first, get theoretically grounded, have a sense of how we would approach the case, and we need to do that uh, before we end up seeing the couple, really. So emotionally focused therapy is empirically validated. That's the first thing I want you to know about it. There are 17 outcome studies and nine process studies that meet APA standards for therapy research. In these studies, 70 to 75% of the couples seen by trained EFT therapists have significant improvement in their relationship by the end of therapy. And 86 to 90% of these couples continue this improvement two to four years after therapy. Theoretically, EFT is grounded in attachment theory, which is formulated by John Bowlby and researched first by Mary Ainsworth and others related to parent-child attachment and in more recent years by Phil Shaver and others related to adult attachment. According to John Bowlby, attachment is an innate motivating force throughout the lifespan. Seeking and maintaining contact with important others is a primary motivating principle in humans from cradle till grave. The need to attach is hardwired. It's an innate part of being a human being, and it's not something that we outgrow. We all long to be precious to at least one other person in the world. And the fear of isolation and loss is found in every human heart. Secure attachment offers a safe haven and creates a natural antidote to the inevitable anxieties and vulnerabilities of life. And it's the optimal ongoing development of the personality helps the ongoing development of the personality and regulating emotions. In difficult times, human wants significant others to stand with them, to soothe and to comfort them. Secure attachment says, I will be there for you. I'm accessible, I'm responsive, and I'm engaged with you. The presence of secure attachment also offers a secure base from which to explore and to adapt new environments. It encourages the confidence necessary to risk, to learn, to change, and to deal with conflict and stress. So the more securely attached we are, the more separate and independent we can be. So given this importance and this uh, attachment being such a strong drive and so innate and so basic to living our lives, perceived inaccessible, inaccessibility of our attachment figures creates distress. Understandably so, right? These reactions are organized around two dimensions, anxiety and avoidance. So when our attachments are threatened, we tend to get um, anxious in one way or another. Some of us hyper are more hyperactivating in our strategies and we get anxious and we intensify and we pursue our attachment figures. And others of us have more deactivating strategies. Avoidance and distancing and down-regulating is how, how those of us who have deactivating strategies react. And individuals have attachment styles and strategies that stem from their family history generally. What they've been taught, what, they, what worked for them in their families of origin, perhaps with couples, uh, also what worked for them in previous relationships. And couples develop negative patterns of interacting, such as pursue, withdraw, that stem from attachment strategies of avoidance or anxiety. So this theory gives us a clear conceptualization of health in a close relationship, what we need for secure attachments, that accessibility and that responsiveness and that engagement. And it gives us a picture also of what underlies couple distress. So in EFT, Emotionally Focused Therapy, we use this theory to help us understand couple distress. 
and we work in stages. In stage one of EFT, we outline these negative patterns. We help couples see their problems as being stuck in negative patterns that maintain their separation distress. So couples get stuck in, say, this pursue-withdraw pattern where one partner pursues and gets anxious and pursues harder and the other person responds to that pursuit with uh, avoidance because it's hard and the more that partner avoids, the more the pursuing partner pursues and couples get stuck in that kind of dynamic. That kind of dynamic is a typical um, couple dynamic and it's talked about in many other therapies, not only EFT, but we, we understand it in terms of attachment. So in EFT we focus on these poignant and vivid emotions that underlie these behaviors, these pursuing behaviors or these withdrawing behaviors. We focus on the emotions that express attachment to stress and attachment needs. Anger is often a reaction to an unresponsive partner or certainly to a partner who has cheated. And sadness and grief are responses to loss of love. And fear is a powerful emotion that also often shows up in couples afraid of losing their secure base and their safe haven. So in stage one, we outline those cycles we help couple out, couples outline them. We don't do it for them, we do it with them. And we, we help understand, help them understand their cycles in terms of attachment and attachment needs and attachment distress. And then in stage two of EFT, we work to create new bonding events, is what we call it. Um, once couples have de-escalated, and I'm not sure I use that word yet, but when we outline patterns, we're working on de-escalation. We're trying to get couples out of blaming and we're trying to get them into um, a state where they understand their patterns. We call it de-escalation. There's enough safety to create bonding events in the session. And in stage two, we help partners to talk to each other from their more vulnerable places, from these fears, from these feelings of sadness from their um, attachment needs. And we help partners be responsive. We help the other partner to be responsive to them. We create moments and sessions where underlying emotions are up and running and shared. And we help previously unresponsive partners accept and understand these emotions. And we facilitate direct expression of needs and wants to create emotional engagement and new bonding. So this is a very, very brief summary of what EFT looks like in general. And hopefully this gives the framework for beginning to plan work with the painful experience of infidelity. So let's talk first, with that as a theoretical background, let's talk first about what is infidelity? So it's a good question, right? In in today's world, there are many ways to be unfaithful. There is um, physical and sexual infidelity, right? That's sort of the most common one we think of when we think about being unfaithful and cheating. We think about um, one partner having sex with another partner outside of the relationship. Uh, there is, um, however, there are many other ways that people are unfaithful. There is what people call emotional infidelity, meaning that uh, a partner has a relationship with someone outside of the marriage that is close emotionally. In, the, in that relationship, they've been able to uh, refrain from having sex, but they become emotionally close. And that can be threatening to a relationship. Sometimes the fact that the partner has not had sex with the uh, affair person does not necessarily console the, uh, uh, the other partner. There's also what we call cyber infidelity. There's pornography. There are chat rooms. There are ways to send pictures, to look at pictures, to uh, simulate activity with other partners. 
There's all kinds of creative ways to be unfaithful on the internet. And for some people, that kind of infidelity is enormously hurtful. But infidelity is best understood in terms of its attachment significance. So how we think of infidelity in EFT terms and in terms of attachment is the, the attachment meaning that's placed on the infidelity. So in some relationships, pornography is perfectly comfortable, acceptable. Some partners do it together, look at it together. In other relationships, looking at another woman, pictures of another woman, and fantasizing to them is an act of infidelity. So it's really about what it feels like to the partner who's complaining about it. So I want to focus more particularly on affairs and and I want to define affairs as attachment injuries. They're betrayal in a close relationship that bring the relationship into question. It occurs in the context of commitment and it defines the relationship as insecure. So as we're talking about what we need for secure attachment, when we're getting back to the theoretical basis of EFT, an affair defines the relationship as insecure. The offending partner is usually inaccessible, often there's deception involved, and it's destabilizing because attachment provides a sense of stability And when there's a break in that attachment, it's destabilizing. It's a direct hit to the relationship. One author called it a bomb tearing through unprotected flesh. It's a loss of trust. It's a betrayal and it's a betrayal of shared values. And often it's deliberately using deception to violate established expectations. So you're getting a feel for why, when I got that call from Lisa, how uh, impactful that was for me to hear about such a betrayal and how um, easy it was to empathize with what she was struggling with and how powerful her discussion and her description of what happened to her was for her and for me. So in order to start couple therapy, few things have to be clear. The affair has to be over. There is no um, uh, good to come of doing couple therapy when there is an active affair because the attention and the affection is going outside of the relationship. So the affair has to be over and uh, in order to start couple therapy when there has been an affair, it's important that you establish that the affair is over. Ambivalence about the marriage, however, is to be expected. It's to be really understood in terms of when people say, I don't think I can stay married, sometimes it's about, I have to stop this pain, right? It may be that the marriage doesn't make it through this, but um, you don't need for, in order to start couple therapy, for the couple to be sure that they're going to continue. That's part of the work, right? So ethically, What's important is that we clarify what our secrets policy is. We don't have to say that we won't keep secrets. We can can do that if we disclose that to our couples. But my recommendation is to have a secrets policy that says, I do not keep secrets and to include this in your informed consent. 
So it doesn't mean that you need to run to the other partner the minute you get a secret. But it does mean that you're saying from the beginning that you are going to work toward honesty and to recreating trust. And that part of how you will do that is you will help them talk to each other about things that they've been hiding from each other. Another thing just to think about in starting couple therapy, and this we'll talk about in more detail, is the attachment figure is the source of and the possible solution to the pain. So when Lisa calls me and tells me that her husband, she found love letters, she was mailed love letters that her husband wrote to another woman, she's telling me about the source of pain that he is for her. And I'm thinking also that this is a relationship that's lasted for 25 years. They're both saying they love each other and think they want the marriage to continue. And if the marriage is to continue, then he is also the source of comfort and the solution to pain if they can reestablish their closeness. So that's how we're thinking in the beginning about how to start couple therapy. So I want to get back to Lisa and to the attachment injury repair model that was formulated by Johnson, Sue Johnson, and Mackinnon in 2006, written about in 2006, also written about in 2010. And this article is available on the um, ICEFT website, which I will um, tell you about at the end of this podcast. The attachment injury repair model is done in stage two of EFT. So if you remember when I was describing EFT, the first stage is de-escalation. So the couple needs to be de-escalated. They need to have been able to delineate at least the pattern around the affair. So we need to have them at least talking in terms of patterns and have at least some engagement from the more withdrawn partner. I'll talk about that a little bit more. But uh, suffice to say right now that the attachment injury repair model is done in stage two and there has to be some de-escalation. And we work toward that in order to do the things I'm going to talk to you about doing. The attachment injury repair model also delineates key steps in processing and in resolving traumatic emotions associated with the betrayal and the abandonment. This model is empirically validated, and um, Mackinnon and Johnson did a study in 2006 that validated the method, and then in 2010 they did another study that validated that the gains remain stable for at least three years. So I'm going to give you some steps, where to start and where to go first, where to go next, how to finish up in working with this, what can be a highly chaotic, highly emotional, very painful situation of infidelity. So in step one, this is in the attachment injury repair model, we're talking about, we're helping the injured partner to describe the injury. So we start with the injured partner. So we kind of started there in my description of the pile of love letters. And um, that's where we start. I think if the other partner comes in and says, but I really want you to understand that I was in terrible pain and you weren't paying attention to me and um, I had a reason that I did this. That's to be understood as 
part of the cycle that they're locked into where they can't get started on beginning to repair. Because if they go back and forth like that, first what we need to do is help de-escalate that situation. So let's say if Lisa comes in and talks about these letters and how much pain she's in about the letters, where we start is we start right there with her. If Jim comes in and wants to talk about how hard the marriage has been for him and how he had no choice, we want to first of all de-escalate that situation and just say to Jim, uh, I get it that when Lisa starts to talk about this, this is really hard for you to hear and you have your own side of this story. But where I want to start is I want to understand what it's been like for Lisa. And I want to help you hear that. So Lisa began to talk about, I've been looking at family pictures and I've been thinking about the affair going on during those times. I cannot tell you how betrayed I feel. You took her on a vacation and we haven't taken a vacation for years. I thought you were wrapped up in work, and I worked hard to be understanding about that. So many nights you were so distant, I thought you were tied up in work and hiding back in your office. What hurts is the most that I wasn't on your mind, that it didn't, I didn't matter to you when you were with her. You were willing to risk our relationship for her. How can I ever count on you again? And when we've talked about it, you act like my pain doesn't matter. I can't kiss you, and I can't bear the distance between us. I need your reassurance, but I won't believe you if you give it to me. I have no ground to stand on here. So where we are in step one is we're just helping the injured party describe the injury and the emotions present. What a violation of trust has happened, what kind of damage there's been to relationship, can they ever count on the other person, uh, are they desirable? Uh, Lisa didn't talk about that necessarily, but um, you would imagine that that feeling would be there too. Am I? Do you want me? Why did you want her? The fear of loss and the isolation. And you want to keep the partner hearing this, not necessarily denying it, not necessarily defending it. Right. And another thing that would happen in step two is Attachment injuries can really result in PTSD symptoms, right? In flashbacks, in hypervigilance, in rumination. Lisa read those letters over and over again before she talked to him about it. Uh, she avoided some. She numbed out. She couldn't sleep. And, of course, this can leave an indelible imprint like a PTSD, like a trauma. It is a trauma. And uh, often the relationship has not been a safe haven before the injury. Right? So, first step, place to start, is to hear the partner out. More that Lisa said is, I'm so angry, I'm so hurt, how dare you? How can you risk all that we have? You've been lying to me. Looking like you're part of the family, but you were with her. And um, then holding back, again, the, um, the injuring partner's defensiveness. Jim would say, well, how long are you going to make me suffer? You know I was having trouble at work. You know I was in some sort of midlife crisis. You understood that. I thought you understood. How long are you going to make me suffer? So you reflect that process and you understand from the hurt person's viewpoint how painful this has been for them. 
you help them try to talk about first their angry emotions. In EFT, we talk about secondary emotions and primary emotions. So in step two, what we want to try to get is in still working with the injured partner to help them articulate the impact of the injury on them, right? Help them see their new, help them with softer emotions emerging and the hurt and the fear beginning to show up. For Lisa, she began to talk about all that she gave to him, how much she was supporting him in her career, and how helpless she felt right now, and how afraid she felt for her whole family. I'm in a suspended state. I look at our kids and see how they have suffered in your absence. I fear for our family. I feel so alone and so wounded, so deceived. It's so hard to read those love letters when you haven't said those words to me for so long. I want the details, but I can't stand to hear them. I want to come back to you, but I don't know how. So as a therapist, you repeat her words, you stay there with her in that pain, and you help her get clear about what the pain is like for her. Very, very hard work. And I want you to reflect a bit about how hard it would be for you to stay in that pain with Lisa. And knowing that Jim is there hearing it, that he has his side of the story, but that Lisa needs to tell hers and that she needs to feel understood. First of all, by you as the therapist and more importantly then by him. So in step three, we begin to help the offending partner understand and acknowledge their spouse's pain. One way to frame this is that the pain is so bad because the partner is so important to the other, right? So Lisa hurts so much, Jim, because you're so important to her. So Jim began to say things like, I know I have to hear her pain. I, I know I have to bear it. I know I caused it. And he would say to Lisa, I know I hurt you. And I carry the shame of that every day. I have my own pain, but right now I'm listening to yours. So I helped him do that. I helped him listen. I helped him bear her pain. And this was a very long and hard process. Jim would say things like, I'm here. I can't sleep the nights before therapy. I'm bearing this and I know I have to. He had the help of an individual therapist, which was enormously helpful to me, uh, but he got it that he had to bear her pain because he caused it, right? And he had to hear it. He had to get that he hurt her and he had to hear it. And when you think about why this is so important, if we're working on healing the broken bond, What's so important is the, the injured partner hasn't felt thought about, wasn't thought about. If you think about what you'd have to do to have an affair, most likely you have to put your partner out of your mind, at least for some of the time when you're with the affair partner, uh, maybe for a good part of the time in order to do this. So when she says it hurt the most that you were thinking about me, he has to hear that and own that, right? Appreciate that that's what happened to her. And in order for there to begin to be healing, the first thing that has to happen is she has to be able to say that to him and he has to be able to hear it and bear it and accept it. Really empathize with what kind of pain he caused because probably he was not empathizing with her pain when he was in the middle of the affair. He will talk about that later, what it was like for him to be in the affair. But um, he first needs to hear what, what that pain was like for her. So I got him to tell me 
about his understanding of her. I empathize with his pain, and I appreciated how hard it was for him to to bear her pain, and I empathize with his sleepless nights. But the present negative cycle for them had to do with his trying to come back, his shame and his hurt and her anger, and his anger too. It was so hard for her to trust and so hard for him to let her see his shame and to bear her hurt and anger. He had his own anger, which is what led him to the affair, of course, but he couldn't talk about it yet. She is too injured to hear it. So another reason you start with the injured partner is that the injury is so painful and they're so wrapped up in it that there's no way that they're going to hear until they feel understood. There's no way that they're going to hear their um, offending partner's pain. They need to be heard first. Okay, so one, two, and three. In step three, we're working with the um, offending partner to bear the pain and to let the injured partner know that they hear it. And then in step four, we can move a bit more to the injured partner articulating their injury and what it means to their attachment. So this partner allowing the other partner to witness their vulnerability, to keep them in their softer feelings, to move them from their anger into their softer feelings and their hurt feelings and their pain. And we can do that when the offending partner has been more present, more attentive, more involved. So once we get that step three accomplished and they feel the presence. Lisa started saying things like, I feel your presence. I know you're there. And that made a huge difference in her being able to be increasingly more vulnerable with him and then him being able to be more there for him. And one of the, this is a basic principle in EFT that the more we can get couples to talk from a vulnerable place, the more available they can be to the other. When they come at each other in an attacking way and in a confronting way, when we feel attacked, what we do is we defend. When we feel um, our partner's pain, it draws us more to them. So that's the principle that we're working here with. So Jim has been more drawn to her, and then she's able to talk a little bit more from being a little bit more vulnerable. So what the therapist does in this stage, in this step, sorry, in this step four, helping the injured partner to be more vulnerable, what we might do is we might look for a moment when the pain was most clear, right? And ask her to describe that to him. So I asked Lisa what it was like for her to read those letters. What happened to her when she opened them and what that was like? I asked her to be vulnerable with him because it's now safer for her because he's taken responsibility for hurting her. She began to talk about how afraid she was of losing him. Can you imagine what it was like for me to read those letters with the kids in the other room to try to keep it from them? It hurts so much. I thought you loved me, but couldn't put it into words. And you were so shy when I met you. I wanted to hear those words that you so easily wrote to her. I'm so afraid of losing you. And I'm so afraid that you love her and not me. So Jim's first response to her was, it's over between she and I. I'm here for you. So that's a nice start, right? That's a nice start with her being more vulnerable, him being slightly responsive. That wasn't an overwhelming response that I just shared with you, but it was a beginning. Right? So, step five is working with the blocks. 
Okay, so we haven't talked much about what the offending partner might be going through. But when you think about what I've been describing, the kinds of things that Lisa's been saying, we might expect Jim to be overwhelmed, right? Might have a hard time staying with her pain. And for Jim, there was a, uh, and, and this is not, this is, I think, across the board in affair cases. There's shame, there's guilt, there's, um, and they get in the way, shame in particular gets in the way of being responsive to your partner. In shame, we hide. So for Jim, he felt so ashamed of himself, felt so, whenever Lisa would say, how much he hurt her, how much pain she was in, what it was like to read those letters, the first feeling that came up for him was shame. So he held that in. When we're shamed, we don't know how to talk about it. We hide, we, we um, keep it to ourselves. It's hard to say, I'm so ashamed of myself. But that was part of the block that we worked on. So I worked with him here in step five, helping him acknowledge his shame helping him acknowledge his responsibility and his part in the injury. And um, how hard it was for him to tolerate his shame and his guilt. I asked him to stay involved with his partner enough to tell her he's overwhelmed. And Jim was able to do that, right? So one way to work with withdrawing and shutting down and blocks to healing and to partners staying present for each other is to ask them to share the feeling that's keeping them apart, right? So if Jim is overwhelmed or if Jim is overwhelmed with his shame and he shuts down, if he can tell his partner that and we can help him do that, that keeps him involved. So he was able to say, he was overwhelmed and how much, how acutely ashamed he was. He would say, I know I'm responsible for this. He began to talk about how he felt that Lisa wasn't interested in him. So in step five, we can begin to talk about what led to this, not that because your partner is not interested in you, you should go out and have an affair, but but to begin to put it in some context, right? He began to talk about how unattended to he felt, how much he felt she wasn't interested in him, and um, how guilty he felt, let me stay with that for a minute, how guilty he felt about what he had done. He even at some point uh, gave money to a homeless person. He said, I did that just to do something that made me feel good about myself. I knew that you weren't, I felt you weren't interested in me I knew it was wrong to go to somebody else, but she idolized me. So this was maybe five months into therapy, maybe longer than that, maybe I would say five to six months into therapy. After many sessions of Lisa talking about her hurt, and Jim bearing it, he was finally able to apologize. He was finally able to say, I'm so ashamed. I know I hurt you. I don't know how to talk about it because I'm so full of shame. I want to run out of this room every time you talk about it, but I stay here and I hear how much I hurt you. I know you've been there for me all these years and you don't deserve this. I am so sorry. I was selfish. I didn't know how to talk to you 
and I really felt you were interested in me. I know I'm responsible for your pain, and I'm so ashamed. So I just want to pause here for a minute because uh, in that particular session, um, we were all crying. I'm saying we because I was in tears too. This moment took us so long to get to. And he worked through so many blocks. And she worked through so much anger and then trying to get to hurt. And we processed and we processed and we processed. And we finally got to him being able to say, how much pain he was in about this and how sorry he was. And it was really the first time he was able to say he was sorry. He, some, in other cases, I've seen couples who say, where the offending partner says, I'm sorry, right away. And then the, the hurt partner doesn't really believe it, doesn't feel it's sincere, doesn't trust them anyway. So Jim's strategy was to wait and to um, listen and I, I I think that was a really good strategy it kind of followed the steps in this model and it worked for him because he really meant it and he could say he was sorry with a full understanding of what his partner had been through right so that's step five, really important and really powerful. And step six is to ask Lisa to say to Jim after he tells her he's present, tells her how sorry he is, is able to own up to his shame and his guilt and his being overwhelmed and stay in the room and be present and be responsible. Then what we want to know from Lisa is what does she need from him when she feels the pain of the affair, right? Because, yes, she needed what he did and she needed his apology, um, but these feelings come up periodically. My experience is that we have these moments in therapy and they're critical and they're, they're uh, um, bonding events as we call them in EFT. But they happen again. The feelings come up again. There might be a trigger for the, you know, here's a picture. I saw, uh, Lisa would say, like I saw a picture in um, when we were in Hawaii and I thought about it and oh my gosh when we were there you were having the affair and the whole thing comes up again and he needs to find a way to be present for her he needs to know what she needs in those moments or when she wakes up in the middle of the night and feels the pain of him being with someone else he needs to know what she needs so we ask her I asked her what is it that you need when you feel this pain? Can you tell him what that is? And what Lisa said was, well, I have been able to have sex with him and I no longer think of him being with her, but I think about how broken we are. I don't necessarily think about the other woman, but I think about being broken together. And I ask her again what she needs from him. And she says, I need for you to tell me you love me. I know it's hard for her, and I know, but I know you can do it because you said it to her. So this is um, quite painful. Right? It's hard for him because he fears that she won't trust his words. And she says, I can risk asking you now because I know you're present. I ache and I need you to kiss my ache. No one has done this for me. My parents brushed off my aches. They brushed off their own aches. 
I need you to kiss my aches. And I know that will help me heal. I can feel that now. So that was an enormous thing for Lisa to be able to do, to be able to say to him, this is what I need, and I need for you to tell me you love me. And she had, you know, not gotten those words for many, many years in their relationship. And now she she needed, she really had to have it. It made sense. She just had to be told that he loved her. So he was finally able to say that. And in step seven, step the other part of it is for the offending partner to respond in a caring way. So the caring response to that, I need you to say you love me, is the healing response, right? So this is when I was saying earlier, the offending partner is a source of the pain and also the pain, the source of the healing. If Jim can say to her, I love you, and he can say that after he's understood everything she's been through, after he's apologized, after he's taken responsibility, and after she's been able to ask him, that's the healing. Right, so he was finally able to do this. This is probably a year into therapy that um, happened between these individuals and all the steps that they made toward healing this injury. And I would say this was a good year of therapy, what I'm describing to you. So I'm taking poignant moments from it. So the next piece of Jim being able to apologize and to say he loved her and to come back into the relationship was for him to begin to talk about what led to the affair and what it was like for him. I was ripped in half during the affair. I hated myself for it. I was in a constant state of dissonance, afraid of getting caught. I knew I was hurting Lisa and I felt I had no right to speak up. I'd gotten to be all about work, but I was also angry. I felt she needed me as a checkbook. She got tired of my ruminations about work. I felt she wasn't interested. And then she put her on her unsexy robe at eight o'clock at night and watched Kardashians. I felt so left out with she and the kids. I was ashamed of myself for not being able to stand up to her. So I hid and I found someone who admired me. The affair partner asked so little of me and I was so grateful for our time together. And Lisa said, I knew you felt this way and I knew you couldn't talk about. You left me so alone, feeling like you didn't like me. It means so much to me that you were beginning to tell me this. And I think he could only tell her this after all this, all this work that we'd done. She could only hear it when he had finally reassured her that he was back, that he was present, and that he loved her. And then they could begin to talk about the, what the rest of their relationship felt like, what led him to the affair, not as a justification and not in a defensive way, which is what would have happened in the beginning had we talked about it, but in the end, when he was back present, he could look at it and talk about what he was suffering from, and she could hear it. Right? She really could hear it. It was. It kind of surprised me. And I've worked with other couples where um, there wasn't necessarily that acceptance of it. That it might take them back, uh, might take them back to the anger and the hurt, and then we would, of course, go through these stages again. One thing's about this when I'm talking about steps, they're not necessarily chronological. So if Jim had talked about this at an earlier stage, or if Lisa wasn't able to hear it even after all this work, then we would just go back and retrace some of these steps again. And I would help her talk about what happened to her when he started to talk about it. I would help him come back from his shame and guilt and be able to talk to her about it. So after we worked on the um, repair of the attachment injury, 
we were able to move on to stage two of EFT. This couple stayed in therapy for another year after the attachment injury repair. So they were in therapy for a total of two years. And here's how we started the um, stage two work. We went back to trying to understand the cycle that they had gotten locked into, which led to the affair, the distance, the aloneness. And here would be my statement of how it looked for them over the years. It sounds to me like for you over the years, Jim, it had been hard for you to ask for what you needed from Lisa. You never asked your parents for anything. They needed you to take care of them. But you wanted Lisa to be there for you and to appreciate you. And Lisa, you didn't see that longing. You saw him as withdrawn, as hard to reach, and unloving. And Jim, you got more sad and more withdrawn. Felt like somehow you didn't have a voice with her. And Lisa, the more he withdrew, the more angry and hurt you felt. Deserted, really. But when you would raise your voice, he would withdraw more. And eventually, you lost hope that he would be available to you. And you settled for the kids' company at home and started leading your own life. You tried to stop needing him, tried to say it was because he had an important job and couldn't be there for you. And you began to see him as wrapped up in himself. And Jim, you felt her pulling away and eventually turned to someone else. So this is a a version of the ongoing cycle where Lisa pursued in anger. Uh, He was shamed by that and withdrew from her. She was hurt by that, got more angry, and he withdrew more and felt like he blew it and wasn't entitled to ask for anything. And this really left them both sad and alone and really neither of them meeting their attachment needs. So what we did in stage two was we worked with this cycle with the underlying attachment emotions, the fears, the sadness, the grief. Uh, And we, um, I helped facilitate bonding events between the two of them as they were able to be vulnerable with each other and share those vulnerable emotions. And um, I co- what we do in EFT is we coach them in their vulnerability and then we coach the other partner to be accepting and to hear. So more of what we were doing in the attachment injury repair model, but uh, in stage two, it was more about the relationship as a whole. So we worked for another year on the relationship as a whole. And uh, this this therapy really felt complete to me. We had done so much work. They were so um, uh, available to experience their powerful emotions. And they were so available to talk to each other about it. And now they have a way to share um, these emotions when they come up as they go on on their own. So I thank you for listening. Uh, I, I appreciate uh, the how, what hard work this is to do. And the more we take these times to just kind of think about it and talk about it together, I think the better therapists we become. If you want to uh, go look into more resources for learning emotionally focused therapy, you can go to, I'm giving you three websites to do this. My website is nancygardnerphd.com. I offer trainings and for therapists and supervision for therapists, in addition to couple therapy. The, there's a website for the LA Center for EFT. It's laceft.org. We offer local trainings. And we help to pull together uh, supervision groups and resources for therapists locally. And for everything you ever wanted to know about EFT, the website is the International Center's website, ICEEFT.com. And that's the center that Sue Johnson runs. It's in Ottawa. And on that website, you'll find articles on EFT, books about EFT, um, 
supervisors to uh, help you with your work, uh, trainings that are taking place all around the world, and um, training videos that are available for purchase. So I thank you for listening. Goodbye. You've just finished listening to another exclusive continuing ed podcast by Clearly Clinical. If you like what you just heard and you need continuing ed credits, please visit us at clearlyclinical.com to check out our one-year membership, where you'll have access to our growing library of continuing ed podcast courses. Clearly Clinical, where our goal is to help you learn, grow, and shine.